0: Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio on the American Theatre Wing. I'm John von Seusten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. We are pleased to be joined today by our first Pulitzer Prize winner on Downstage Center, the current playwright-in-residence at the Signature Theatre Company here in New York, and also um, and lady, Paula Vogel, who is joining the illustrious company of writers such as Edward Albee, Horton Foote, Sam Shepard, Arthur Miller, John Guare, Lanford Wilson, just to mention a few. Paula Vogel is the current playwright in residence, just to explain what the uh, Signature Theatre Company is all about. Each season, they produce the works of one playwright, in this case, three shows by Paula, the oldest profession which has already been produced. The Baltimore Waltz, which has just opened, will be continuing through January 9th. And on March 8th, starting production, Hot and Throbbing, its New York premiere. The Pulitzer Prize winner for How I Learned to Drive in 1998, Paula Vogel, welcome.
1: Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here.
0: It's great to have you. The Baltimore Waltz, let's talk about that first since that's your current production going on. It's a very interesting show, which is based on real life, I guess.
1: Yes, yes. And and
0: your brother, the the central characters in the show are Anna and Carl, brother and sister. She's an elementary school teacher, and he's her brother who's a librarian.
1: That's correct. Um, I wrote the show... um, in a remarkably short time after my brother Carl died of AIDS in uh, 1988. Um, And I actually thought of doing the play while I was waiting in the corridors of Johns Hopkins Hospital. And this may sound like a very somber approach to a subject matter, but I actually wrote it um, to try and not only process the grief, but actually the amazing sensation of joy and celebration that I had with him in the last year of his life um, as we progressed together. It was was an extraordinary journey. Um, And of course, uh, if if I say that, uh, again, it may not prepare people for this play, which is really a fantasy journey. My brother asked me, um, years before he died, to go with him on a trip to Europe. And I didn't realize he was HIV at the time, uh, at the time when there was really uh, there was no drugs, there was really no protocol for the disease. So I didn't go to Europe with him, and he went without me. Um, and as he was dying, I, I wondered what that trip to Europe would have been like. Um, so, this is a play in which a single school teacher, an elementary uh, school teacher, has a mysterious disease, and her brother Carl takes her on a journey to Europe. Um, at the time that I wrote this, I had never been to Europe. I wrote it out of a Berlitz guide. Mm-hmm. And um, it's uh, hopefully a very fun very sexy journey um, through the libido in Europe.
0: Well, I should interject that the play is not morbid at all. It's quite humorous and quite warm and quite loving. It's, it's, it's a funny comedy, but it's about a very serious subject. So you've taken humor and used it to interpret what is a painful experience for many people.
1: Well, it's, it's an interesting thing. I I've felt a, a pure emotion with uh, my brother um i I think one of the things that people say after they they see the play is, "You must love your brother very much, and the love continues to this day. But um the extraordinary thing about my brother Carl, and I imagine so many people have relationships like this, is even in the midst of dying, it was a joyous experience. He was funny. He was real. He was intense. He was an incredible character. And um, sometimes I do get strange looks from people, but I actually have many times the most vivid sensations in my family come at the funerals. One moment we're we're weeping and the next moment we're telling the most outrageous jokes. Um, And so it's more in that kind of um, sensation of joy jetting up against how little time we have.
2: It's interesting that the period in which you wrote the play, there certainly was both with the discovery and understanding of what AIDS was, and the earliest works were very earnest, very, in many cases, harsh. Right. You had As Is, you had The Normal Heart in film, first you had Early Frost, and then Long Time Companion, and then it seemed that a few years into the crisis, writers... Began to in some way feel freer in how they explored it because we had your play roughly Baltimore Waltz roughly around the same time as we saw Marvin's Room which wasn't explicitly an AIDS play but was inspired and and I'm just wondering now looking back on that period. when you go back to this play, now 12 years later since its first production, how do you look back on on what that artistic period was surrounding dealing with this terrible crisis?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, we've just experienced the play. Uh, this was our second preview last night. Um, and we talked to the audience afterwards and we said, well, what is it? How does it feel? Has it? It doesn't it feel dated. And in fact, the response was no. Um the play itself isn 't per se about AIDS, which is interesting i mean you're you're absolutely right howard it was a a, a kind of second generation play. It was about processing uh, the kind of grief we go through and it's interesting doing it in New York right now uh, in terms of post nine um, eleven I think as a country right now, we are in a a state of crisis we 're in a state of grief um, and the ability to take that moment and and to remember the joy, um, to remember the celebration is an important moment right now. The thing that's scary about the play is that we didn't have to change any of the names. Um, and, in fact, AIDS is very much uh, in our midst. And we still have, uh, shall we say, certain um, diseases, for example, a lack of flu shots right now with the government – um, where one is very aware of being an individual uh, in the face of disease, illness, uh, loss, and a, shall we say a recalcitrant government response to that. Now, what's different, uh, and certainly in terms of the first uh, major works that addressed it, was um, back in the 1980s when we were experiencing AIDS. There was a, um, how to say it, Uh, there was an attitude, a kind of isolating attitude towards people who are HIV positive. There was a a shunning, if you will, and a sense of denial about it that we are no longer facing. That part of the story and the journey, I think, is over in terms at least of New York City and at least of the United States. Um, When I first started working on this play, though, um, we still didn't really know the disease very well. Um, there was a mystery about the disease. Um, and uh, I was just talking last night The the thing that frightened me was this play was first done in 1990 in a little tiny theater uh, in Alaska, Perseverance Theater, 50 seats. Um, Juneau, Alaska is a town of, what, 28,000? Mm-hmm. We had one performance simply for caregivers – for people with uh, HIV and that was in 1990 and I remember thinking I had no idea how much it was in every single community uh, and the spread of it again because the 1980s under Reagan was pretty much one of denial Um, the government did nothing Um, something else that I mean looking at it uh, particularly uh, from the distance now of an older playwright um I am seeing – it's like looking in the mirror and seeing a younger self, the kind of ferocity of the anger as well as the humor um, that was in the face of a government just saying, we're not doing anything. It's not our problem.
2: Now, you say looking at a younger playwright because, of course, each of the plays that are being done at Signature this year – our earlier works, though, as I've read a bit, it seems you've gone back and revisited at least two of them. I don't know if you've done any changes on Baltimore Waltz.
1: Uh, I have done literally only one change on Baltimore Waltz to let the poor fellow – uh, who's playing the third man, who strips off all of his clothes just about in every scene, have enough time to put his trousers back on. So off. it was a technical <laughs> issue um, <laughs> There was a technical issue here. He needed his pants for the next scene, so we had to have a little bit of uh, uh, filler. But what is the
2: temptation to go back and and look at your work and change your work?
1: It's interesting. I, there are some work works that I've written that I wouldn't change. It It's exactly what I... I wanted it to be or it's exactly what it was supposed to be. I mean there's an interesting thing I'm sure as you talk to writers, you realize uh, w- there's actually nobody in control of the script. The, the script takes on a life of its own and um, as writers, we think the play world should go this in this direction but the script actually goes in, of its own volition in another direction. I wouldn't change Baltimore Waltz. Um, It was meant to be that celebration a year after my brother's death. Um, It was meant to be a recording of how it felt. Um, And I'm not in that place anymore, and so therefore I shouldn't really be touching it. Um, With Oldest Profession, uh, which was the first play of the signature season, it's interesting. I'd written that play when I was 29 years old. I had never really worked on the play. Um, It had become a screenplay. Uh, It has only been done outside the country. It's running right now in Poland. And I'd never gotten the chance to really work on the piece as a young playwright. Um, And in that uh, sense, what I did was I worked on it like an older dramaturg, making suggestions to a younger playwright. Um, I thought that it was incomplete. With the last play that we're now in auditions for, Hot and Throbbing, which quite frankly is the play that um, for me in a way I'm proudest of writing, it is diabolically difficult. And I am almost there. I've rewritten it three times. I've been working on it since 1990. Um, And it's a very hard play to complete. And I'm bound and determined. It's not a huge rewrite. But I'm bound and determined with this third cast, this third director, to finish the play. And, I mean, I think it's an interesting thing. I think plays need to change according to the times and the cast and the directors. I I do think it's collaborative. You don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater as you do these things. But um, there was a, a long time ago, I think, there was a documentary about a woman conductor called My Antonia who, as a woman conductor, only got the chance to work with an orchestra once a year because the field had no women conductors. Once a year, she got to practice her craft. And with a play like Hot and Throbbing, which is a scary play to do, um, it's a play that's going to be upsetting. It's funny, like all my plays are, but it's a very upsetting, dark play. There are not a lot of theater companies that say, here, come inside Let's all get really scared together. Let's get upset.
0: What, what, what is the storyline of, of Hot and Throbbing? The
1: storyline is about a woman uh, who is the mother of two teenage kids, a daughter and a son, who is writing soft pornography for a feminist film company uh, called Gyno Productions. Mm-hmm. And in this one evening, her husband on a restraining order breaks down the front door when she's alone and it is both an erotic encounter and it turns into a terrifying encounter. It is, if you will, the flip side of Frankie and Johnny by Terence McNally. It is almost a love story. It, it's, it's an interesting, very complicated play even to describe. It's funny. And for me it was what do we as a society think that obscenity is? What do we label as, as obscene Versus what is really obscene? What is really obscene is domestic violence. What do we label as obscenity? Janet Jackson's nipple being exposed? (laughs) That's obscenity? I mean, we have gone to such a crazy point in time. It's going to be interesting to do this play right now. For me, it's an interesting um, situation. I'm a feminist, and I am indeed a First Amendment feminist, meaning that I think that pornography should not be suppressed. It's a a freedom of speech issue. Am I occasionally upset by different pornographic expression? You bet your buttons I am. But I think it's important that we as Americans allow ourselves – not allow ourselves, force ourselves to be upset to face these confrontations.
0: Well, didn't Voltaire once say, I may disagree with what you have to say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it? Absolutely. You're saying the same thing.
1: I'm saying the same thing. And this is the play that I'm saying it in. So it is a complex, funny. Um, it's not a play that has an answer. I don't write thesis plays. Um, We're not going to come out going, oh, now I know. Now I I have a a feeling about pornography. Now I know where I stand. Or, gee, now I know where I stand about domestic violence. Or now I know where I stand about mothers and teenage sons and daughters. No.
0: But it sounds like the play will at least get us thinking about things and questioning our own judgment.
1: Hopefully. I mean, when I started writing it, I was so um, agitated and scared, and as I did the research, that I actually – couldn't sleep at night. I had to write the play at night um, and wait for the sun to rise before I could actually sleep. Um, Yeah, I think it'll get us thinking. Um, So it's an interesting thing. You you have a play like this and you I think people think playwrights write a play and it takes them, oh, I don't know, a couple of weeks. But in truth, real playwriting happens as a process of rewriting um, with cast, with directors. And like Antonia, Uh, the conductor who got one shot a year. I've had basically three shots only to get this play right since 1990.
2: Now, this play was written in a period when your work was being done entirely in the not-for-profit subsidized theater and in a period where a major source of funding for those theaters, the NEA, was coming under heavy political attack. And so you plunged into something almost sure to to get into trouble in that period. Yes. How do you think that ultimately affected why you've only had the opportunity to work on this play three times? Well,
1: probably. I mean, from my point of view, and, uh, you know, it's very interesting. People say, oh, you're having a retrospective at the signature, you know, isn't isn't that wonderful? It is wonderful. But if it weren't for the retrospective at the signature, I would never even... See the oldest profession. I'm a woman with a Pulitzer Prize. What does that mean in this country right now? What does that mean right now, as we are suppressing grants from the NEA? What does this mean at a period of time when there is, and there has been for a long while, what I I term a benign censorship? We are very very fearful. It's a balancing act to to run a theater company. You have to be worried about offending subscribers. You have to be worried about offending your corporate sponsors, the people who are patrons, and you have to be worried about the government saying, we're we're taking away your NEA grant. Now, obviously, this happened a lot in the 90s when I wrote the play. Um, Places were losing their National Endowment for the Arts grants for doing something like Sister Mary Ignatius explains it all to you. Um, We're aware, I think, more of the commercially successful plays that have been suppressed, like Angels in America not being done on certain university campuses or in certain communities. But the truth of the matter is is that women playwrights like myself or writers of color never get done in the first place. The censorship happens before something is chosen for a season. Um, So... For me, Signature gives me the possibility of completing work that I began 30 years ago that I've never seen in this country. I mean, it's a curious thing that Hot and Throbbing, for example, is done often in translation throughout Brazil, Latin America, uh, and abroad. But it's not done in this country except for a very brave under-30 artists in a 90-seat theater in some small little hole in the wall, um, those are the only places that do it in America. Now, this terrifies me, and I think we should all be terrified.
0: Okay, now, what, what's the reason why it hasn't been done? You're a Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright. Obviously, your work is very good, but two of these shows, The Oldest Profession, Hot and Throbbing, and making their New York premiere, and did you say before that Hot and Throbbing has not been done in this country yet?
1: No, it has been oh, done. it has been done. It's been done, actually, in beautiful productions. Oh. American Repertory uh-huh. Theater under Robert Brewstein with Anne Bogart directing and a production five years ago, four years ago at the Arena Stage by Molly Smith. Both wonderful productions, uh-huh. very different. They were brave enough. Molly Smith and Robert Brewstein as artistic directors have been the only American theater companies brave enough to do this production at that kind of professional level. It's been done in Germany. It's been done in England, and it's been done throughout the world in translation. But in America, at the level that we're about to do it, at a Lort Theatre, there have only been two productions. Now, that's fear, I think, folks, in terms of the consequences of doing work that's upsetting, that's disturbing.
0: And is that because so much of theatre nowadays depends on donations, on grants, on that sort of thing, that they're afraid of losing that? Do you-
1: yes, the difficulty, of course, is that the more that we give in to the fear, the, the more that we lose our muscles as audience members to go into theater and confront serious issues. What we do instead is we go out and we say, look, we're in a war right now. We're in a war. We have terrorism. We've got poverty. The economy is shaky. And who knows how long I'll hold on to my job. Do I want to go to the theater at night? and see something upsetting. That's where we are right now because we've lost the ability to say, I have to go to the theater, I have to wrestle with this with all of my neighbors. Um, And that's what we're losing as a theater. The places where the truth-telling is going, and even that's getting suppressed, is independent film, and even that's getting suppressed. What I'm worried about right now is that we are facing a period where the only entertainment – And by the way, I don't think of theater as entertainment. This is another problem. We have, as a society, said that theater and art is entertainment. It's not. It's not entertainment. Yes, it can be entertaining. But art, for me, is public discourse. It's like going to a hall meeting, a town hall meeting, where everybody gathers together. And as a group of people, as neighbors... We take a journey together. That's not the same thing as entertainment. Right now, we're at a point where we want to escape. I understand it. I understand that urge to escape. It's a dangerous thing, however, not to face the darkness. And for me, whenever I'm in the presence of great theater, even if it's scaring me, I look around. I see I'm in the middle of an audience. I feel better afterwards because I am confronting the problem rather than escaping the problem. I feel lighter.
2: It's it's worth interjecting here that for our audience that in addition to being an extraordinary playwright, you teach at Brown University and you've been teaching playwriting for a number of years. And as you talk about these issues, are these things – that you have to confront is there this self-censorship in your students uh, in what they're trying to approach because you are helping to form a next generation of playwrights. You've had a wide range of students but certainly some who've achieved some note, Nilo Cruz, uh, Lynn Nottage, uh, Sarah Rule whose play The Clean House was just done up at Yale Rep. So, So it's not just about your voice but giving voice.
1: Well, I mean, it's interesting. I started the program at Brown um, 20 years ago. Um, And I started it because I was at a point 20 years ago where I couldn't get Hot and Throbbing done and I couldn't get Oldest Profession done. Um, And I was facing these frustrations and I thought, I'm going to continue to write no matter what. But I'm worried about the brain drain in my field. The obvious thing for me to have done then was say, you know what, I'm a good writer. I can write for television, and I can make a living writing for television, or I can write for studio film and make a lot of money.
2: And we see so many playwrights who've gone over to television. You look at the credits on the Law & Order shows, and it's great playwrights like Eric Overmeyer and Marlene Meyer. And 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 Teresa Rebeck. Teresa Rebeck, exactly.
1: Great writers. Um, Likewise, I mean, and there's great television writing, particularly for cable. Um, But... That worried me a great deal and I thought about it and I got this opportunity and I thought, okay, if I really want to stop the brain drain, I have to pay attention to who out there is writing but no one is doing, who right now is in their mid-20s to mid-40s who keeps writing while they're doing two to three jobs, you know, paying the rent and And how do we address the problem? And so I decided in a way that in my program it would be for the maverick voices who were so extraordinary and so unusual that not-for-profit theaters didn't know where to slot them. They didn't know, you know, gee, we never saw a play like this. Let's reject it because we don't know how this play is going to go. Or this is a really upsetting play. Or what a quirky voice. I mean, who's going to believe this play? It's so quirky, So I started finding the writers as I traveled around the country and saying, come to Brown, come to me. And for two years, what we do is we produce everything they write. Um, We do workshops. uh, We do cabarets. And then it's, for me, a lifelong dialogue with these writers. And what I've been doing as my little side job is being, in, in essence, an amateur agent. I hound people in the American theater. I say, listen, you haven't heard about this person. His name is Nilo Cruz. I have never seen a voice like this. This voice is remarkable. There's only one person like this. And believe me, it works. It works at home. Again, with audience members who are 20 years old or 18 years old to people who are in their 80s who come to see his plays, standing room only, people weeping. I can tell you it works. It works on a $100 budget. Now, surely you can do this play. You can do this play on a $20,000 budget or a $100,000 budget. We've already proven that it works on 100 bucks. And this is what I've done for the last 20 years. Um, and I have to say that the, the, the question is, how do we put together enough skills so that all of them can pay their rent, have pleasure in the process of working with actors, get done at least, like my Antonia, once a year with an orchestra that they can conduct. How do we do that? If they can get one production a year, it can accumulate. So that's really been my life's passion. And as I, I work alongside them, I think, okay, Vogel, so this profession didn't get done. Get over it. You better write another play because you have to keep up with the younger writers. You have to prove that you're an honest artist, and that means you have to do the thing that you're proselytizing about, and you have to take incredible risks. My student work, and again, I don't think of that as student work. They're young artists. They create play worlds like nothing we've seen in New York. I come to New York, and I realize the people that I'm working with, New Yorkers and across the country will see in five to ten years, but I have them right now in my living room. Um, And they're 10 years ahead of me. So it makes me think every time I sit down to write a play, I better not write anything that is safe, comfortable, and that's ever been done before. I better try to make a complete mess, a failure, if you will, something experimental, something that I've never tried. Um, And that's the gift they've given me for the past 20 years. The real pleasure now that it's been 20 years is I really can say to people, coming soon to a theater near you will be the work of one of these writers because they're out there in the communities now.
0: Now, a little while ago, talking about the Baltimore Waltz, you said you only made really one change in it, enough dialogue to let this fellow put his pants back on on stage in full view of the audience. Um, Yet... After the performance, the second performance of the show, you said you were kind of like polling the audience members. What did you think of it? Is it still timely and all that? Does that reflect some doubt in your own mind as to maybe the show is not as current? And then follow-up question to that two-part question. question. Have you taken your own shows and had your students rewrite them for you as they would write them today?
1: Oh, how fun. In, in other That's words, a great question. Take,
0: take, take that concept. Yeah. Now, how would you write this?
1: Um, you know... There's always this incredible split when you're a writer. And I think it's true for novelists. I think it's true for poets. It's certainly true for those of us in the theater. We just get the feedback first because it's in front of a live audience, whereas novelists have to wait years to hear how their novel is working. Um, I am not concerned that the play is not current. Um, but I am always concerned with whether or not I am respecting the audience enough with enough urgency and passion to make sure that what I'm thinking and what I'm feeling is getting out to the outside, is, is communicating to them. Um, and sometimes it's a simple thing. It may be a light cue. It may be a sound cue. It may be that they will have a question that makes me think, oh, I never thought about that. And then I go back and I talk to the actors about it. Um, it's really more a desire for me to get in under everybody's skin because time is precious. In the same way, it's parallel to the fact that I I had 38 years with my brother. Every moment was precious. I only have 90 minutes on this play Mm -hmm. with everyone who comes to see it. And I want us to have a discussion with each other. It's a discussion with an audience when they watch. I want them to know that I'm very... I I have an urgency and a passion. I want to share. Am I sharing enough is the question for me, not as the play current. Can I go a little bit further? Do we need to ratchet up the intensity? Um, Do we need to be even more vulnerable than we are? How far can we go? Because there's an incredible love affair, I think, between artists in the theater and the audience. Um, and, f- as far as i 'm concerned, I will always be saying, "Did this work? Did I go far enough? Have I given enough? I have to give everything I can and that 's the question that you do ask. You ask and you watch their bodies mm-hmm. um, in in the theater night after night.
2: I was fascinated to discover that, as part of the work that you 're doing at signature it 's more than just watching them put up your plays or being obviously a collaborator and putting up those plays. But you're merging your teaching world with with being that resident playwright, and you're do actually doing seminars or workshops yes. for people about how to be playwrights, and and they're they're targeted at particular audiences. So that you're yes. you're working with general audience. You're actually doing one for for sponsors and donors. You're doing one. Uh, can you tell us about what that sure work is?
1: sure? Um, well, I, the truth of the matter is is that you know I I don't really consider myself a teacher as much as sort of a a workshop cheerleader, you know, um, facilitator. Uh, And I know this may be controversial, but I think it's one of the reasons that theater is in the the state that it's in. Um, I feel that everyone is a playwright. I feel that everyone is an artist. I feel that everyone is an actor. I think we are all artists. I think it's an innate human drive. Uh, I think that for many of us, that drive is censored through education or our families or whatever that fear is. You know, you can't make a living doing this or uh, maybe you could go to law school or whatever that is. We censor ourselves from that enjoyment of being an artist. Um, And I think it's completely accessible. And uh, so when I started uh, teaching at Brown, I also made sure that I was teaching um, workshops for people who've never written plays before, including – One of the most astonishing experiences I've ever had, I taught women in maximum security uh, for an eight-week workshop um, at the Adult Corrections Institute in Rhode Island. Um, They did everything that my graduate writers do and more so. Um, Completely blew me away. So for the past 20 years, I've also done things like taught uh, Brazilian artists with a translator or – Um, I'll go to some place like Prague and get people together. And um, we do very short exercises, conversations. And I am now convinced that after 48 hours, anybody knows that they can write a play. People are astonished when they find what happens in the room. And for me, it always – it revives my faith. So when I – when signature gave you know gave me this incredible honor, here's your season, what do you want to do? I said, Well, I'm really will miss having the discussion and the dialogue and the game playing in the room if I'm not doing what I call boot camps. You know, they're playwriting workshops, they're very intense. So we decided, um I just did my first boot camp with a small select group of producers. They were phenomenal. They and were when great.
2: You say- producers, You're talking
0: about commercial producers, commercial producers and not for product producers yeah. as well? Commercial. These are people who are already working in the industry. Exactly. Who are making theater people happen. People who are right yeah. now,
1: you know, producing Night Mother or The Donkey Show or, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. fill in the blank. Um, uh, and hearing uh, f- uh, particularly Emmanuel Eisenberg and his insights, um, I see, I teach because I want to learn. I mean, I'm really, I, I'm too, I was always too broke for tuition. So this <laughs> is my way of getting around uh, tuition fees. Um, our next uh, workshop will be for funders and donors and people who are supporters of the arts in new york then we 're asking subscribers if they want to take a workshop, uh, and then we 're doing one for students in the new york area and i 'm hopeful that we can end it uh, the, the season with a workshop with critics, uh, which I have done before in washington and uh, I have learned more from being spending one day in the room um, with critics writing plays or discussing plays um, than, I think, any other workshop.
0: We're kind of along the same lines, I guess. Somebody, I've heard that you have an interesting concept that I think you refer to it as the cockroach theory of playwriting. Right. What is that all about? <laughs> well,
1: and this is one more thing we're doing in the season, yeah. Um, the cockroach uh, theory of of playwriting. goes back to this notion that I think it's important um, at a time when theater is dwindling that we actually try to create more theater and create more writers. You see, I think that art works not by uh, a relationship of supply and demand, but actually in the reverse, that the more supply that we create, the more theater we provide, the more we can actually create a demand. And that means elementary school kids doing plays. That means parents doing plays. That means everyone having theater accessible. But my vow is that whenever I go into a theater company, I'm bringing along with me like cockroaches. You see one on the surface? There are ten underneath the counter. I want to bring in with me the younger playwrights that I'm working with. So another wonderful gift that Signature has given me um, is the ability to do a series with younger writers I've worked with. Uh, I'm presenting three plays. We just did one play, sold-out audience, um, a 23-year-old, 24-year-old playwright um, who's going to be, again, astonishing. It's like me going around the country saying, you haven't heard of Nilo Cruz, but trust me, Kiara Houdiz, people are going to know her across the country. Her work is starting to be done um, in uh, Portland uh, and Portland Stage Company. So I'm, I'm bringing them in with me. Um, but the, the, the main thing is really to sort of communicate to people that playwriting is something that belongs to us all, that we can all do. Um, and we do something called bake-offs, which if, if people are listening to this, I double dare you, do a bake-off with your friends. Here's how you do a bake-off. You get 10 volunteers, let's say your friends. You meet on a Friday night, and you say, okay, by Sunday we're all going to write a play. Now, depending on where you live, you could do a bake-off, for example, the Los Angeles bake-off. I got 10 writers together 10 years ago, and I said, tell me everything about Los Angeles, those of you who live here. And I made a list of everything they said. Um, smog, traffic, Hollywood stars, uh, the man, Chinese theater, et cetera, and so forth. And then I said, okay, as a group, vote for what elements you want in your play. And the three elements that got the most votes, everyone decided they wanted to write a play with motels, (laughs) traffic jams, smog, and synthetic body parts. (laughs) I said, great. So that's what L.A. is to you guys. Fabulous. All right. You have 48 hours. Write as much as you can a play with smog, traffic jams, synthetic body parts. And they came in and then we just did what we called the bake-off. Everybody brings in food and we just read all 10 plays, whatever people get out, you know, until we run out of pages. So
0: each one is writing individually.
1: But they're writing the same play. Um, For example, when I was doing How I Learned to Drive, I asked my graduate writers to do a bake-off with a play that went backwards in time, a moon, M-O-O-N, and a relationship between a younger and older person. They wrote it in 48 hours. I cheated and I wrote my play in two weeks, but I invited them to the first preview so that we would realize that we were writing the same play. I think that in the history of theater, theater always thrives – as a kind of collective game playing where someone like Racine sits down with Cornet and says, I double dare you, if you write a play about Fedra, I'll write a play about Fedra. So we literally design plays. I asked the producers, now I gave them 48 hours, but they haven't turned in their homework assignment yet. I asked them to write a play about producing. What would a play about producing be? Other um, than
2: the one that's sitting on Broadway, Maxie <laughs>
1: and they said everything from the pitch. Um, they talked about specific uh, restaurants in New York where they all met for the drinks, um, and they had all of these incredible elements. But you could see suddenly what we're really talking about is ten different angles on the world that we share. Um, that becomes enormous fun. In Brazil, I'm trying to remember. I can't remember what the rules were for Brazil. In Prague, the writers wanted to write a play, and they did, that had a play with bridges. because are all the bridges in Prague. Nightmare. And a scene in which three languages are spoken simultaneously. London writers chose for their play Bake Off, um, this is very kind of interesting, Fog, Street Youths, and a moment of shame for them was the quintessential British play. Um, I've had women write the prison play. I've had parents write a play about parenting. Um, but the main thing is to do it quickly without holding yourself back. Do it in 48 hours. Come in and let's – again, it's, you're not trying to write long day's journey into night. You're simply trying, as a group of people, to share the world you know, and to get under each other's skin, and remarkable stuff. I mean, really remarkable stuff comes out.
0: Now, when you give this assignment to these ten individuals, whether it's in Prague or Los Angeles, wherever, do you write an eleventh play yourself? Sometimes I do. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah, sometimes I do. Um, I do with my. I do with the playwrights who are at Brown. Actually, uh-huh. um, we do uh, sort of the same journey. Um, But sometimes no, Uh, pretty much because I might not know the world. Um, And particularly, for example, I've done this in Alaska, um, the Alaska play, Bake Off. It's really a way – I mean the reason I'm hungry about theater is that I want to know the world that's right in front of my face but that I'm no longer connecting to because I'm watching it on the news. I want to watch human bodies. I want a personal voice. I've got to see what's in front of my face in a new way, and I get hungry for it. And so the question that I'm trying to do or the question I have is if we all got into the room and if you knew that you could participate as a writer, would you go to theater differently? Would you feel a different hunger for it? And I think people do.
0: And when you give the assignment, are there any qualifications like no more than three cast members or one act or length or anything like that? We're
1: going to sit around the table and read it to each other. It doesn't go outside the room. Um, it 's interesting for writers, for example, this I did this with the Los Angeles group of writers. that was ten years ago mm-hmm. um, they 've stayed together as a group ever since, and they 've actually performed festivals of their own work, and they are now all through the United States doing plays, um, But for ten years, they realize that they now have a circle of first readers. And a circle of colleagues that have stayed together. And the thing that I always tell, particularly young students starting out, is create a circle. Create people. Say, come to my house two weeks from now and I have to have the first draft done and read it in my house with beer and pizza or my name is mud. Whatever that wonderful experience is as young artists, keep together because circles rise faster together. As an individual alone in the world.
0: And are these people by and large now actually produced playwrights? Are they yes. active?
1: Yes. I mean it's, it makes me feel unbelievably thrilled but also very old to sort of <laughs> take a step back and realize where they are right now. Now a lot of the playwrights that I've worked with are actors. Um, some of the playwrights that I've worked with um, also, which is very gratifying, are playwrights and also teaching and trying to do the same thing, the cockroach theory of theater, of making sure that there are more and more playwrights that go through the door.
2: I want to come back to your own work now. And reflecting on something that you said earlier, you commented that you always want to challenge yourself and do what's, what's frightening. You mentioned earlier uh, about oldest profession being worked on as a screenplay. And I've, I've read references to working on how I learned to drive as a, as a screenplay. How does that affect your continuing to work on stage? Because these things seem to be getting developed, but mm-hmm. they've not yet happened, right. as far as I know. And I've also seen references at times to you working, looking to work on musicals.
1: I've been pitching musicals for years, actually, um, and actually have started working on several, but um, have always in some ways backed off. And it's an interesting thing. My first love is musical theater, always has been. Um, I wrote musicals uh, in college, uh, The Beautiful Quasimodo and um, – uh, what else? Oh, I, I did an adaptation of Lord of the Flies, something only an undergraduate would do, a musical adaptation musical of Lord of, Lord of the, Lord, the Flies. I can't imagine that. And we call it Lady of the Maggots, what <laughs> happens to women when men in civilization are removed. Um,
0: Obviously written by a feminist. Uh, obviously written <laughs> anyway, yes, by an
1: undergraduate. Um, <laughs> it was a lot of fun. Um, I uh, grew up listening to a radio program, actually, called Matinee at One. We didn't have money to go to theater when I was growing up. So I listened to every Broadway musical that, was, that I could hear only on the radio and fell in love uh, with musical theater um, and thought that I was going to write music, didn't happen that way. Um, and when in college I started writing these things and having a great time and people said, you know what, you can do this, take it seriously. I thought, well I better learn something about theater and I took this little side trip that lasted 25, 30, 40 years. I have about 10 to 20 musical ideas in my head um, and who knows, I mean I've pitched at people, it just has never happened, I still hope it happens. I think that musical theater is actually the most potent political theater that America has. Um, I think it's the most emotionally effective form.
0: Because the music can deliver the message? Yes, Uh
1: absolutely. The music can deliver the message. And uh, when I'm a huge Stephen Sondheim fan. As he knows, I always embarrass myself and gush whenever I see him. People must gush at him all the time. But (laughs) um, I think something like Sweeney Todd uh, and Assassins. Um, it's the closest thing in this country we have to Bertolt Brecht.
0: Mm. Other than Sondheim, what other uh, authors, composers would you oh, include in that?
1: You you name them, and they're in there. Um, loved Hedwig, obviously, uh, and The Angry Inch. I thought that was remarkable. Uh, I am a fan of Janine Tesori. I'm a fan of Adam Gettle. I'm, um, oh, golly, Candor and Ebb. I mean... There's a lot of – I I really am a a musical theater queen um, Mm -hmm. and always have been. Um, I love particularly the songs of Rodgers and Hart. Um, I think Lorenz Hart was remarkable and one of the musicals that I'd love to do. But with my approach, it's probably not possible to do. I would love to do a Lorenz Hart musical.
0: To rewrite the book?
1: no. To look at the man who created the musical. Oh, Peter to do Four. a battler in his heart. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, uh-huh. to look at what the form of a Broadway musical is uh-huh. uh, politically. Um, and again, I don't know if that's going to be possible to do. I pitched it. Uh, I've pitched it. Believe me, i pitched <laughs> it um, at Mr. Prince as well as Mr. Sondheim. I don't know if it can be done.
0: Well, t- and- t- talking politics now, without getting into politics, um, we've had a lot of discussion in the last couple of weeks publicly across this country about red states and blue states. In the playbill, just to put it all out front, this the last sentence in your bio says... She voted for the Kerry Edwards in in the last election, so we obviously know where you stand. How do you think your shows work with middle America and general America? Do they only work in the blue states or would your shows work in red states as well?
1: Absolutely not. I actually don't consider myself a New York writer anymore. Uh I'm a writer from regional theater. Uh, My plays get worked on in Alaska,
0: not New York. But your regional theater is blue states. I mean, you're from Rhode Island.
1: I'm from Rhode Island. Um, I wouldn't call Alaska a blue state. Um, I wouldn't call Utah a blue state. I wouldn't call Texas a blue state. Yes,
0: shows have been produced there. Oh yes, absolutely. And the, and the reaction?
1: Um, th- I've been embraced uh, in Houston. I'm very moved. Uh, by the productions that have been done in Texas. I've done a lot in Texas.
2: I have to say I find a discussion of red and blue states in terms of how you interpret art to be very reductive and, and counterproductive to what we what we need to do when we go to the theater, which is erase those lines and, and look at the work.
1: I don't believe there are the lines. I think that this is a, uh, an idea that's been created, a concept that we're now accepting as a reality. I don't believe in it. In the same way that I don't believe the Bush has a mandate in the same way that I don't believe that um, issues are uh, black and white. I mean, for me, the excitement of theater is actually to take a subject that I think I may have an idea about and examine it and then realize I have no idea about it. I have no set answer. It's a complicated, complex, confusing messy, emotional issue that has no easy answer. In fact, theater should be 180 degrees opposite from the set speeches that Mr. Bush gave in the last campaign with sound bites and easy answers. It should be messy. And that means when I sit down to write something, I want to be proselytized by the subject matter into changing my own vote several times in the course of an evening, if you will, I think that the stance for a theater person in the audience should be undecided, that that we should go into uh, a play with an idea, with a firm conviction, and we should come out upset and undecided. Um, but the notion of blue and red states, that's ridiculous. Um, I've had extraordinary artists in small communities, in places that are probably right now voting to um, repeal gay marriages. So it's not that cut and dried.
0: Well, you've had some very interesting uh, topics. What topics that you have not done are you looking forward to doing in the future?
1: Um, I've been thinking about not not that I write specifically on topics, but yes, I guess.
0: Well, your show's are about different things. The one is right. about pornography. Right. One is right. about child molestation. This one that I saw the other day uh, uh, is about your brother dying of AIDS.
1: Uh, the subject that's recently been occurring to me as I've been watching, again, the way that we have grouped ourselves into blue and red states. I'm getting interested in doing something on born-again Christianity and the death penalty.
0: Hmm. Mm-hmm. That could be interesting.
1: It sounds like something that s- scares me when I <laughs> start to think about doing the research. Yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, the Baltimore Waltz is um, somewhat autobiographical, I guess, and a bit of fantasy in it. Uh, it's Basically a dream sequence, and I should mention the cast. Very talented cast. Amazing. Kristen Johnston, who America knows from Third Watch. Uh, not Third Watch. Third Rock, third from, Rock the Sun. from the Sun. Yeah, Third Rock from the Sun. Uh, David Marshall Grant, who plays the character of Carl. And the third man who plays multiple characters is uh, Jeremy Webb. Very talented and active cast. These people don't sit still for a minute, do they?
1: They make me so proud every night. They're gorgeous.
0: Yes. And I was amazed at uh, at how many different um, References you've made to other things, like this one scene that reminded me of the Marx Brothers toward the end, the crazy uh, doctor with the the wild hair and all that. Right. Yeah, and the the whole show is basically without giving it away too much, I guess, basically um, about a strange disease called Acquired Toilet Disease, ATD, and this uh, young school teacher who believes that she has and she goes off looking for a cure for it to Europe on this trip that you and your brother in real life never took.
1: That's correct. Yeah. yeah. Was
0: that a cathartic experience writing the show for you?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I have been very blessed. This particular play has been done throughout the United States mm-hmm. as well as throughout Europe. And I've been blessed. The, the The young artists who do this play just commit themselves. It's an act of love. Um, and I've had a lot of laughter and, and, and a good weep or two along the way with them. Mm.
0: Well, Paula Vogel. Thank you so much for being here today on Downstage Center and uh, the distinguished playwright in residence for the current season at Signature, the Signature Theater. Thank you for joining us and I hope you. we'll see you again here.
1: Thanks so much.
0: For
2: Downstage Center and for the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman. I want to remind all of our listeners that these programs, as well as all of the American Theater Wing's other media and educational programs, are available as free, on-demand audio and video from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org.
0: And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John von Susten for Downstage Center. That's a wrap, and thank you.